listening to Full Power Living with Eileen Dillon. Most people who've had challenging childhoods believe they must carry and deal with resulting problems and scars for the rest of their lives. Thankfully, we have people who are stepping forward to tell us and demonstrate for us that this is not necessary. Arlene Gale is my guest today, sharing about facing forward so you can move forward in your life. In essence, rewriting your personal history, moving forward into both peace and empowerment. So welcome to Full Power Living, where we're helping the world to realize and work with the importance, power, and mastery of human emotions. We welcome your questions and your comments on the chat. We have two, ones on blogtalkradio.com forward slash FPL for Full Power Living, or the radio show page of emotionalpro.com. Arlene is a nonfiction writer, an editor, and marketer, and she has a master's degree in marketing from the University of Texas, and she's also an award-winning writer and speaker who speaks to all kinds of interested groups to spread the message of hope and success that's discussed in her method and in her book that we're talking about today, which is Face Forward, Move Forward. So welcome to Full Power Living. Thank you, Eileen. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. In the first part of your book, Arlene, you tell the story of your childhood where you were raised by an angry alcoholic father and your mother was taught to expect abuse for herself and her children. Can you set the stage for us by telling us the story, please? Sure. Um, yeah, well, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, I just want to talk about how, you know, the, the my legacy you know, it's multi-generational. My father's um, was from multiple generations of abusive alcoholism, and that's what he grew up with, and that's what he knew, and that's what he did. On my mother's side of the family, it was about religion and culture being used as a weapon. So, um, and again, multiculturally against uh, the women particularly. So that was the legacy that I inherited. And so my book is not about blaming and shaming my parents. And I think that's really important because, you know, there are parents out there who did the best that they could. They did what they knew. And as you know, the world has changed a lot in the last 30, 40, 50, well, gosh, even in the last five or 10 years. So um, I speak up because I want to change these legacies and to give hope to not just the abused, but the abuser. So with that said, um, my growing up was was from that legacy, and I got to the point where, you know, it was very conflicting. I was 18 years old, basically, betrayed and left, you know, left out, hung out to dry again one more time, and at college with no money, no financial aid, no nothing. And it occurred to me that, you know, now what am I supposed to do? Um, I I got nothing. So as part of that conversation with myself, it became about personal accountability and what do I want to do and who do I want to be and where do I want to go from here? Because the growing up was full of not just the physical abuse, you know, that people can see, you know, the bruises and the the battering that people can see, but the emotional abuse, the spiritual toll, the, I mean, there's so many different levels of what abuse does to a person. So now what? 
so the face forward part of my book is that, you know, I'm alone from, you know, I get, I got nothing, but the good news is, is I can start from scratch because I got a blank canvas and that's terrifying, but also exciting. So the face forward part is, okay, I, I have to do something different than what I know. I can't just keep going on like this. I literally would rather die than mm-hmm. to carry on this legacy. Um, suicide was, was definitely on the table because I, I knew I could not do what I knew. So then, you know, people think, well, that's the hard part. Well, actually, that's the easy part because now I have to, now that I'm facing forward, I got to figure out how do I take that next step? How do I move forward? How do I live a life 180 degrees different than anything I've ever seen modeled? And so mm-hmm. the tools that I used are in the second half of the book, but, you know, I wrote the book because there's so, there's, the world is so, there's so many people full of pain and they're stuck. And, you know, right. it was not an easy story to tell, but I felt like I had to tell it. Yes. Oh, that's a really good, thorough uh, explanation. Yeah. Um, my father, uh, Arlene, was also abusive. Uh, he was abusive psychologically, financially, physically, and sexually but he wasn't an alcoholic. <laughs> and um, right. so one thing that you point out so clearly that I also experienced is how impossible it is to see outside of what is happening in an abusive household. And, um, you know, when you're the child, you that's the way it is. And it seemed like you didn't uh, really get that other people live differently until you started uh, visiting other people in middle and high school and um, talk about that what what was it like to to realize not everybody lived the way that your family did right because as a child what we know as normal you know our normal is what exists mainly in our in our homes under our roof so um, my dad for 25 years in the Air Force and so what we knew was the Air Force kind of life, the move in from here to there and the stress and strain it takes on the, the families and on the people. And so that was normal. Making friends and giving them up, that was normal. Going home at the end of the day for where my dad was bringing home people that he worked with and they would sit in the house and they would drink and drink until, you know, not just drink, but drunk and then get abusively drunk. That was normal. That's the way I grew up. That's what I saw. You know, my dad disappearing on a weeknight and then coming home, you know, passing out and sick drunk. That was normal for me. You know, the yelling and hitting of my mother, that was normal for me. And as a child, I felt like I had no control until one day he took it out on my, you know, he took out his anger on my little sister. And that's when something kicked into me that I'd rather be dead than to watch this happen. I just, I can't do it anymore. And that became normal, stepping in and taking that attention away from my mother from being hit or my sisters from being hit. That became my normal. And um, going to bed at night, you know, praying not to wake up in the morning became my normal. So it wasn't until my dad retired and we moved into a community where it wasn't so insulated, there wasn't that, that insulating bubble of the military that I started to get out and see things as a different kind of normal. Not only was I not living isolated in a military community anymore, but I was also a little bit older, so I had a little bit more freedom to go and do. Both of my parents worked, 
So they would drop me off at a friend's house, and then we would walk to school. That friend's, their parents were, were a different kind of normal. You know, she thought they were crazy because they were both so introverted and quiet, and she was more extroverted. So, you know, her normal was that kind of normal. So I got out a little bit more. I got my driver's license, got made more friends, made some deeper friendships, and saw how normal was really the perspective of each person's home and realized very quickly that my normal was not quite very normal. As a matter of fact, that, that abuse was not normal, and I could then begin to classify it as abuse. And it became very confusing for me. You know, being a teenager sometimes stinks anyway. You know, you got all that hormone stuff going on and growth stuff going on and girlfriend, boyfriend stuff going on and, you know, trying to make good grades to go to college. And then you figure out that the abuse you're experiencing at home is not normal. So then mm-hmm. the questions begin to arise about, so what's wrong with me? Why am Why am I getting this? What's wrong with me? And then not only just hearing the words that my father would say as he would hit, but then really starting to believe them because my normal is different than everybody else normal. Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And and that is the most crushing learning. It's about how you learn to see yourself. And uh, so you, you're describing your experiences, but not only were did you get beaten, you were constantly told negative things about yourself. And my learning is that when something, when words are repeated over and over, the subconscious mind takes them as true. So what were the kinds of statements that became true in your mind about yourself that you had to work on later? Well, and Eileen, you know, you, you have that science kind of background. So you, you know the Pavlov's dog, you know, the right. theory that, you right. know, ring a bell and get the rats to run to the, the food and pretty, pretty soon that, that becomes a conditioned response. Well, that was what it was for me. So it, except for in this case, it was the negative words, the humiliation being accentuated with the punches and the loud tones of voice. My father could yell at the dog and it would release all sorts of negative words in my head because just because of the tone of the voice. Um, so even now sometimes, you know, he's been dead for more than 10 years, and somebody in the grocery store can string, scream at a child, and those memories come flooding back. I mean, they don't mm-hmm. have the power that they used to have, but I know what that child is feeling because I can feel it too. So anyway, mm-hmm. so, you know, some of the things have to do with, you know, the, the I'm not blank enough, you're not pretty enough, not smart enough, not lovable, not good enough, you'll never be whatever, you'll never be good enough, you'll never be lovable, you know, you're going to die in a dark hole by yourself because you're not lovable. Um, all of that thing, all of those things, and it, it, then you accentuate that with a child wanting to work harder and harder to please, and the harder they work, the angrier the other person becomes, and the less lovable they become, or they hear that they become less lovable and less important and less pretty and less happy and, you know, all of, you know, all of those things. You'll, you'll never matter to anybody. You know, and really, all of us have some hurt or some pain in our lives. You know, that's just, you know, the darn the humanity reality of it all. But the, right. the thing that, that I think that connects us all is just that desire to be loved 
And so Mm -hmm. when you have that desire to be loved and you try and prove yourself that you're worthy of that love over and over and over again, and then just to get kicked in the teeth and knocked down, and whether they say the words or not, you know, you're not lovable, you get that message, and that's what you take in. And so when you have that message that becomes part of your core that you'll never matter to anybody, that you'll never be lovable, when that's the one common denominator that each of us has is that desire to be loved, it destroys, and it destroys completely. And it's hard to recover from that because where do you go? What do you do personally, professionally, spiritually, emotionally, when your core belief is that you don't matter and that you're unlovable? It's, right. it's hard. Right. Yeah, I carried that belief for many years and finally came to the conclusion that I had to love myself. And then I was full of consternation. How do you love yourself when you don't know what being loved feel like? And that, that was quite a challenge. Well, exactly. And how do you take that step towards finding, to looking yourself in the mirror and finding any hope or peace or possibilities, any love, any redeemable factor in you when those voices are so ingrained in your head that you'll never be, you can't be, you won't be. You're starting from a deep hole. And I know mm-hmm. it sounds hopeless, but it's not hope. It takes intention. It takes planning. It takes a desire to be personally accountable to who you are. And, you know, it, it sets up a huge hernal battle. I can say for myself for many years when I started this journey to try and figure out exactly who am I and who do I want to be? What do I want to stand for? Um, you know, what am I willing to die for? And, you know, all of those questions going around. And then, you know, there, you've got that survivor guilt. You know, why did I survive all of this when I can turn on the news and too often find stories of children who died who didn't? So Mm -hmm. all of those things, you know, those are all bricks in the wall that keep us from being, you know, the, the, the greatness that we were all designed to be, in my opinion. It's hard to love yourself when you don't have, you've never been told there's anything lovable about you. Right. Well, I ask these questions because you developed your method of facing forward. I want you who are listening to realize what it was that Arlene was trying to crawl up and over to get out of. Because I think this is a really, really important message, Arlene, that we human beings, uh, it, it helps me to think of our world as a giant school, as all you who listen regularly to the show know a giant school and and we come into these horrible situations and we can live in the horribleness of it for the rest of our lives or we can recognize that there's something about what we encounter that's offering us an opportunity to learn and all out of it and um and that is the real message of hope in what you've written about yeah i i, I believe it is and i believe that it it has to be it just it has to be intentional and you have to you have to somehow be able to want something different and you know for me i didn't go from you know being the dregs of society and being all of those negative things to you know to sainthood i mean you know i've right. never i've i've not made that journey and along the way from from bad to good or from being you know completely feeling useless and a waste of space which is another one of my father's favorite saying i was a waste of space so from making that journey to where i am today 
you know, I didn't do everything right. But Mm -hmm. part of my journey was to learn to give myself grace, to say, you know what, perfect, but it was better than what you would have done a year ago or two years ago or whatever. And, um, And, you know, and as you do that, you get you you are better. Right. But it's about it's about knowing that, you know, I may not feel lovable right now, but that's my goal is to feel like if nothing else, I can look myself in the mirror in the morning and say, you know, you're okay. You're doing okay. You know, and then you get to the point where you can say, you know, you did some good stuff yesterday. Let's do it again today. You know, <laughs> but I, I made a lot of mistakes and I'm, I, and I'll give you one example. You know, when I was in college and making these, this turning point and trying to do something different, I didn't have the money to pay rent, but yet I went out and bought alcohol. And so this was just before that turning point of deciding I can't do that because you know what? I'm even a failure as a drunk, you know, my family (laughs) legacy. I was a failure at that because I can have one or two glasses of wine or beer. And then I basically crawl under a table and pass out. And it was the waking up under somebody's dining room table at a college party after just a couple drinks that I realized, doggone it, I'm even a failure at my family legacy. Now, really? (laughs) You know, and, you know, I can laugh at it now, but I could hear my father's voice restating the, you know, you're just an idiot. You're a stupid waste of space. You know, I'd shoot Mm. you and kill you if it wouldn't be a waste of a perfectly good bullet. You know, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm a failure at the family legacy, now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so I was lucky start. in the fact that that room for me to grow. Yes, yes, that's really great. We're up to our first break right now. I want to talk when we come back about the fact that one of the ways you dealt with all of this as you started growing into high school was to get really busy. And I want to talk to you about getting really busy in situations like that and also what cost you to be so busy. You're listening to Full Power Living and we'll be right back. You and everyone you know have been born to learn. All humans are on earth to attend school. People know this intuitively, but they don't really live by it. And now you can I'm Eileen Dillon. Born to Learn is the title of my latest book, available at EmotionalPro.com. The result of 30 years of investigation, which gives you the big picture and the instruction book. Born to Learn gives you information you need to turn your problems into puzzles and then solve them. Life is kinder when we complete our homework assignments. Start today. Order Born to Learn at EmotionalPro.com and get a leg up on your life. All right, welcome back. I'm talking today with marketer and writer and the author of Face Forward, Move Forward, Arlene Gale. And our number for you to call your questions and comments is 888-498-0570. Before we get back to our show, I've got a few announcements. First, it's time for our holiday, our annual holiday break. We're going to be back on the air on January 5th. That's when I'll be talking with psychotherapist Joyce Stewart about journeying from fear to love. 
Also coming up in January, I'm talking with a bright young woman, Katie Russell, about her upcoming 4,600-mile bicycle journey from Texas to Alaska to raise money for cancer research, and with the remarkable Raphael Kushnir about emotional connection, and with Dr. Susan Eman about her book, New Brand of Sexy. These are only a few of the inspiring and in-depth shows we've got planned for you in 2017. So uh, go to EmotionalPro.com and on the first page, click subscribe and we'll put you on the list so you get notification of our upcoming shows. And you also can subscribe to Full Power Living on iTunes. So click the iTunes button in the middle if you'd like to do that. Join us back here again on January 5th at 9 to 10 Pacific time. Well, today I'm talking about the author of Face Forward, Move Forward, Arlene Gale. So before the break, I I mentioned, I noticed as you were going into high school, you got yourself incredibly busy. You took on some really big projects, and that was a way for you to deal with the situation at home. Tell, Tell us about that time of your life. Okay. Well, you know, it started, I'll go back a little bit, about 10 years old, the first time that I actually committed or contemplated committing suicide. And as I was laying in bed that night, trying to grasp at some sort of hope or some sort of reason to feel like I should survive, despite the fact that I was such a, quote, huge waste of space, um, according to my abusive father, I thought about what I would do in the morning when I woke up and I thought about going to school and I still remember the faces of my teachers back when I was 10 years old because I remember those teachers who would greet us at the door look me in the eye and call me my by name they knew my name and to me mm. that was a big deal because at home I was invisible unless it was time to be a punching bag so those teachers basically saved my life And so I learned at 10 years old that I had value at school, that I mattered at school. Now, you know what? Looking back at it now from my age, those teachers did the same thing for every single student. They knew their name. They looked them in the eye. They smiled. They greeted them. You know, I had teachers that, you know, if I turned in a project or a report or something that was half-baked, you know, they could have given me a D or an F, but instead they put a note at the top that said, come see me, not your best work, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and they would talk to me because I mattered to them. That's how I felt. You know, Mm -hmm. I was probably just one of 100 students they had, but I mattered to them. I was not invisible to them. So I learned that school was my safe place that I didn't have to tell anybody what was going on at home. I was not the same person as at school as I was at home, it, at least from the way they looked at me. As a matter of fact, I've got some great friends that I still maintain all these years later from high school. We got together this summer to celebrate milestone birthdays. And so many of them have read my book, and they wonder, how did we not know? And so it took me a while to process how did they not know. And the bottom line is, I didn't want them to know. I put on right. a, a different face at school because if there was so much guilt and shame associated to what I was causing my dad to do to me at home, because that was my perspective at that time, that I didn't want mm-hmm. them to know that part of me because if they knew that part of me, they might see the, quote, real me, which was the unlovable, unworthy waste of space. And I didn't mm-hmm. want them to see that part of me. So at school, I was, it gave me the opportunity to be someone different. 
And I discovered that I'm really good at that person, at being that person who's at school. So I really suffered a lot from that, that identity crisis of at home being unworthy and not good enough and at school being, you know, someone who could be elected to student council, someone who could be the president of the Spanish club, someone who was worthy of running fundraisers at church. I liked that person. She was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so as a result, because I was getting positive affirmation in all of those things, I began doing more and more and more and more. And so I was hardly ever at home. So not only am I feeding the good part of me or the part of me that people see as good, which was different than my home life, but it, it allowed me to experience some freedom, experience some hope, um, but it also was exhausting exhausting yes. to you know emotionally physically mentally spiritually to be those two different people and mm-hmm. to be running and basically what i've discovered in looking back is even though i loved all the things that i did in high school i was running away mm-hmm. i was running away from who it was my father said i i was to who I hoped that these other people were seeing and who I hoped this other person in this other part of me was really the truth. So mm. there was no reality, but there was a lot of hope. But mm-hmm. I got to the point where I just drove myself into the ground and I ended up in the hospital and I almost died from exhaustion. Wow. Um, yeah, and it I, took me a long time to realize that my adrenals, you're, you're literally under stress constantly, and my adrenals got exhausted. Exactly. Well, and and then it it ran my immune system down to the point where they thought I had meningitis and did several spinal taps and couldn't get the fever to break. And it turned out it was it was only pneumonia. (laughs) But being the little overachiever that I was, it was pneumonia and bronchitis and ear infections and sinus infections. And, you know, to top it all off, it was just outright exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost killed myself trying to prove my father wrong. And yes. trying to prove him wrong is not the same thing as trying to prove myself right. You know, I found mm-hmm. out that, that trying to prove him wrong meant that I was living my life from a place of fear and anger and shame and guilt, as opposed to trying to prove myself who, you know, trying to show myself who I am and who mm-hmm. I stand for and what I'm willing to, to fight for means that I live from a place of hope and peace and possibilities. And that's very, very different. Well, that, that, now you're going right into the face forward approach. <laughs> so perhaps it's time for you to say, okay, <laughs> as you were developing this, how did you come up with the idea of face forward? I think you were on a, no, well, I know at one time you were on a bicycle, but that was later. But you have the idea of facing forward. What's going on with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the big solidifying moments in my life was, you know, I had my own child, um, you know, and the first time I yelled at him to just be quiet. I mean, it was, it, it's still bad, so I don't want to minimize that. But the look on his face, the look in his eyes, the fear was something that I will never, ever, ever forget. It just tore me apart. It was worse, the worst feeling 
as a mother to feel like I had hurt my child. And all I did was yell at him to be quiet. <laughs> and wow. that was like, okay, I am not, I would literally rather be dead than do that again. And uh-huh. that was such a little thing compared to the way I grew up, but it was not something I was willing to put up with from myself. So that really um, was a huge, huge moment in my life. But then the next thing was is that we were, uh, he was a few years older, and we were riding bicycles in a state park as a family, and there was a little trench that we came across that, you know, when water runs across like a, a, a wood, or not a wood, a, a gravel path, it leaves a mm-hmm. little trench. And I guess I was taking the lead, and... I don't remember exactly how it happened now, but, you know, basically the bottom line was my son negotiated the trench and I turned around to look behind me and I hit that trench and fell off my bicycle and rang my bell. And uh-huh. I was sitting on the ground um, seeing stars, you know, the cartoon kind of stars rolling around uh-huh. your head because I felt pretty hard. And then I looked back up and saw that my son was still writing and he's doing just fine. That's kind of part of where the face forward came to me was that if I face forward and watch where I'm going, instead of looking behind me at, at what else is going on that's already happened, that maybe that I won't be continuing to fall and ring my bell. So right. the face for, that was part of the face forward. Another part of the face forward, and you see that in the, in kind of on the back of the book where I talk about if you're running from a monster, instead of looking over your shoulder, you'll cover more ground faster if you face forward in the direction that you're going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ever sit, sit in a movie theater and watch one of those movies where that monster's chasing the main character and the main character stops to look over the shoulder and then the monster gets them? Well, it occurred to me that that was kind of a metaphor for what my journey is that if, you know, the monster being the abuse and all the things from my past, if I keep looking over my shoulder, those things are going to get me and they're going to devour me. They're going to ruin me. They're going to be the end of me. So instead, I'm just going to run from that monster and I'm going to continue to look in the direction that I'm moving. Because if my feet and my face are pointed in the same direction, that's where I'm moving. And I want to move towards, even if it's unknown, I want to move forward to that peace and possibilities of where I can go next, where the next step takes me, as opposed to what I already know is behind me, which is what I don't want. The uh, sign-off for this show is to pay attention not to what you want to overcome, but to what you want to become. So I follow that philosophy in both my life and in uh, my therapy work. Um, But let me take just a little aside here. As a psychotherapist, I've noticed that young people who've had highly dysfunctional parents or living situations have difficulty believing they're entitled to develop their own life. And yet, um, when you look at the earth as a school, we all came here to live a life and, um, and explore a lifetime. So to me, it seems more like it's our right and our responsibility to go forward into our own life. And I think your mother helped you do this by a comment she made to you. Are you referring to when she was in the hospital before she died? No, I think it was when you were uh, full of consternation about whether you should go ahead and uh, go into college and start your own life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My mother was really sick and she ended up dying of a muscle disease, but it was one that 
you know, took her very slowly and caused a lot of pain. And it was really hard to watch and be a part of. And, you know, at this point at, you know, 18, you know, the one thing, one of the things that kept me through high school was knowing that when I turned 18 and I graduated that I could leave home and I could get away from all of this. And so this was when she was diagnosed. She'd been sick for a couple of years, but this is when she'd been diagnosed with um, a horrible, debilitating and, you know, death sentence of a disease. And I had said I was, I, I had decided I was going to stay home and help her. And, you know, but the decision was not very easy. And I go in, in the book about the turmoil of making that decision. But um, basically my mother kind of got angry with me and she basically said, no, I don't want you here. You need to go and do better than I did. Mm-hmm. And um, at first that just, it, 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 it was painful because my mother now is turned against me. But then I came to realize that it was such a huge gift of giving me my freedom and giving me, I guess, permission to go out and, and be whoever I decide that I'm going to be, to go live life on my terms and not to be held back by anything or anyone, um, that the power is mine. And I think that that's something that, you know, that's the wonderful thing about becoming an adult is that Uh you get to decide who you are. You know, you're accountable for the words that come out of your mouth. You're accountable for the actions that you do. It gets, you get to a point in a certain age where your behavior is yours and it's no longer cute or becoming or intellectual or whatever words you want to use, I mean, to play the victim, because mm-hmm. you ha- you, you're in control of your own destiny, and you have those choices to make. And to choose to do nothing, it always amazes me when I say this. To choose to do nothing is making a choice. <laughs> you are making a, right. a purposeful choice to be who someone else has said that you are instead of determining who you're accountable to being on your own terms. We all have that power. It's not easy, and sometimes it just is what hopes and dreams and possibilities are, are that's what they're made from is our own personal accountability and sense of that that's beautifully stated beautifully stated so instead of gee I don't have a right to have a life it's like not only do you have a, a right you have a responsibility so get out there and live a life and you know, in spiritual terms, it, it means that all of us get uplifted when one person such as yourself lifts yourself up. And that's also something I know when you're beaten down, you don't think of, but it's very, very important. Right. And you do it with little steps. Um, you know, and, and in my book, I talk about planning. You know, you probably said it. I know I've said it, and I've heard it before. You know, people say, you know, dream big. You know, like that's all you really have to do to make things happen in your life. But really, mm-hmm. you know, when you have dreams, that's a great first step. But a dream without a plan, without action steps to, to get to the point A, from point A to point B, that's just an illusion. And the more you hold on to the dream and focus on the dream without having a plan, the more, I like to say, the more delusional you get. <laughs> because uh-huh. we, we're all, I don't like the word entitled. I think we're all responsible for being the best that we can be and figuring out how my best me fits up against your best you and, you know, somebody else's best them. Because, you know, I'm a spiritual person and I don't believe 
I don't believe that we're, we're made by accident. I believe we're all made for greatness, but it's our choice as to whether or not we allow fear to hold us back or we allow faith mm-hmm. to propel us forward. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that. So you had to be afraid, speaking of that, you had to be afraid at many t- many places. You, you ended up, and you offer this in your book, you ended up developing a method of like fold down this piece of paper in half and put the negative things over here and the positive things and how you get out of it over here. Uh, what else did you develop there? It was really good. <laughs> well, I laugh because... You know, I'm a writer by trade. That's what I do for a living. I write. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I do use a computer and I do put notes on my cell phone. But, you know, for me, I love the good old-fashioned pen or pencil and paper. So often that's how I process things. You know, I'm married to an engineer. He doesn't like pencil and paper. You know, he wants mm-hmm. a spreadsheet. You give him a spreadsheet and he's happy. Um, it freaks me out. So everybody mm-hmm. will have to process this in their in their own way with in a way that makes sense to them. But basically, you know, I got tired of every time I turned around and saw my reflection, whether it was in a mirror or in a shop window or in somebody else's eyes, I got tired of hearing my father's voice saying, you're not blank enough, whatever that happens to be, you know, and everybody, when they take that sentence, can sit down and come up with at least a half a dozen, I'm not blank enough and fill in that blank. But I just got tired of living that way. And I got so totally consumed by fear and anger and hate and shame and guilt that when I started this process, I literally was afraid that if I got rid of any of those emotions that I would cease to exist. They had become Mm -hmm. so all-consuming that Mm -hmm. if I got rid of my anger, which was a defense mechanism, that I would cease to exist. So it was not just a matter of getting rid of the anger or the hate or the shame or the guilt or the fear. It was a matter of what do I want to replace that with? Because in my little mind, <laughs> if, if I could replace the ugliness with something good, then maybe that would be a placeholder that would circumvent this, this fear of ceasing to exist. So that's how I started. So I sat down with a piece of paper and kind of folded it on in half. And on one side, I put down the statements that I would hear about, um, I'm not smart enough. And then I would write down an example or two of when, in what scenarios, I didn't feel smart enough. And one example was when I was with our friends, and they would start talking about flying, for example, and because several of them were private pilots. And my husband was on his way to working to become a private pilot. But they would start talking, and I would feel really stupid. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, so what am I going to do instead? Because I don't want to feel dumb. You know, I want to feel smart enough. So th- on the left side of the page is, you know, I, I'm stupid. And on the other side is I'm smart. Okay, so how do I want to be smart about this subject? Okay, well, flying sounded interesting. It sounded like fun, so I started to learn about flying. And before I knew it, I got totally sucked in, and I became a private pilot too. So that was about giving myself permission to research and learn and ask questions because not knowing is not being stupid. Not knowing is just not knowing. And it's a great opportunity to learn. Like you said, we're learning more. But then the the other part of this was there were things that they would talk about that I would feel dumb about, and I just really didn't care about that topic at all. 
So part of it in this process was, okay, I feel stupid when they talk about this. And then the other half of that was giving myself permission to say, you know what, I can just smile and nod and pretend like I'm understanding because I really don't care about that topic, and that's okay. (laughs) I don't need to know anything about everything, and I can be okay with not caring about that topic. You know, there's tons of other things I care about and I want to spend my time learning and doing, but that's not one of them, and it's okay. Good. So that's how I – that's how I – you know, and that's just one example of how I took the negative and turned it into something positive. If it's something I want to know more about, I'm going to learn. If it's something I don't care about, I'm going to give myself permission not to care. Great. All right, so we'll move on to our second break. Our (laughs) guest today is a wordsmith, nonfiction writer, editor, marketer, and author of Face Forward, Move Forward, Arlene Gale. Leave your path behind you permanently. We'll be talking more on this when we return here on Full Power Living. for what you really want, to take responsibility graciously and willingly for your mistakes, or to relate with others because it's fun instead of because you need something from them. Most people believe manipulation and codependence are normal behaviors for adults. They may be common, but they're not normal. Manipulative behaviors really are designed to be part of childhood, to be put away as things of the past when we become adults. So, if you're ready to let manipulation and codependence be part of your past, then get the mini-course I've created for you, Ending Codependence, The Bottom Line. I'm Eileen Dillon, the Emotional Pro, offering you a formula that you can follow for creating healthy, manipulation-free, and lasting intimate relationships. I also give you the tools and principles that you can use to develop lasting immunity to codependence. Get Ending Codependence today at www.emotionalpro.com. That's emotionalpro.com. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Arlene Gale, who has definitively rewritten her own early history of violence and abuse to become a productive, happy, full-functioning person in her own life. And she's written a book to tell us how she did it and how you can do it, too. It's called Face Forward, Move Forward. So where can people get a copy of your book? I know your website is Arlene Gale, A-R-L-E-N-E-G-A-L-E dot com. Where can they get a book? My book is on Amazon.com. And again, Arlene Gale, last name G-A-L-E, and the book is Face Forward, Move Forward, and Amazon.com has it. And there's also six companion journals that are part are on there that they're by the same title, Face Forward, Move Forward. You'll notice a bunch of different pictures. And each journal on Amazon.com that has the Face Forward, Move Forward title on it is a different theme. There's six of them, and one deals with hope, Love, another one, do not be afraid, peace. The do not be afraid and peace are 50% biblical passages. And basically, at the top of each page is a quote, and then there's just blank lines for people to write and process. And the thing that I'm most proud of my journals about is that they came from 
conversations with my readers. So mm. that interaction is, was, is so important to me. It was affirmation that, you know, quote, airing my dirty laundry, as I've been accused of doing by family members, really has had a value and has, has changed people's lives. And it's made conversation about overcoming abuse more possible. And I, so I'm very proud of, of those journals. And I really encourage anybody who likes to write and process to, to look at those. They make great gifts, too. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I just want to make a, an aside comment on the airing of dirty laundry. When I was studying family therapy, we were taught that there are different types of families. There were uh, there are families that are suicidal families where one person is uh, has a threat of committing suicide, so everybody's oriented around that issue. And mm-hmm. um, and about 50% of families are what are known as repressive families. And there's kind of an unwritten rule for each family. And the unwritten rule for repressive families, we blame. And that's where the uh, airing dirty laundry comes up. If you dare to allow yourself to be different than everyone else sees themselves, then they try to hold you down by telling you you're airing dirty laundry, you're embarrassing the family, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's an, another way, if you've been in an abusive family, that people will um, try to put shame on you later as you try, as you work to become the person that you came to the earth to be because of the power of family systems. Uh, you'll, people will try to hold you back. And I, right. I'm glad I'm glad to hear you moving right on past that. So well, and and writing writing this story has cost has come at a great personal cost um, mm. with family relationships. Um, but I can't, you know, one of my big lessons, and again, one of the tools I talk about in my book is that I can't control them. I can only control my reaction to them. So right. I had to do what was best for me. And ultimately, my goal was not just it's all about me, 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 but it's about if I answer the question, why me, then, and what if, so it's why did I survive, and what if I survived to be able to tell this story to help someone else, mm-hmm. and in the year that my book has been out, I've found there's been tremendous conversation about healing, and also about this misconception that once you're abused, you're always going to be a victim or you're always going to yes. be, a, a, you know, that's, that's the title you wear, um, yes. you know, and, and I'm all about, you know, what labels do you wear and where did you get them? And I'm not talking, you know, designer clothing labels. I'm talking uh-huh. about those unworthy labels, those shame labels, those fear labels. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. who, who gave you those labels and why do you hold on to them? And what labels do you want to wear instead? So um, for me, that was a lesson that was worth the risk of the relationships. And I still pray that, that they'll come around and they'll get past the fear of or the whatever the emotion is around me, quote, airing dirty laundry and get to the where they understand that this was really about healing and helping. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my motivation. So, you know, my prayer is that that will happen, but in, we'll see. It, that's uh, about yeah. them. That's not about me. I can't control them. I appreciate that. Just to focus a little bit, it's like the early abuse and the early experiences that you had that were dysfunctional, it's something you went through. It's not who you are. And I think that's right. a really powerful message. So uh, I wanted to just look at some of the uh, 
areas that you needed to confront. You, you've already talked about facing fears. Uh, you, you spent some time assessing what areas of your life needed to be changed, the cost-benefit analysis of what you were doing, just like you were talking just now with family or people that care about you that, that want you not to move ahead and certainly expose what's going on. And the idea that you wanted to reward yourself for success and not punish yourself for failure, which is an easy pattern to fall into. Do you have one of those you want to just illustrate for us at this point of how you worked through that? Sure. Well, let's do the cost-benefit analysis because okay. uh, I have a master's degree in business specializing in marketing and communication. And I worked with businesses, I've done business writing and business development for 30 years. And I'm also a public speaker, so I've learned and some of the topics I talk about are how do we take the things that we know in the business world that we apply very successfully and kind of reframe that thinking to apply it to our personal lives. Because, you know, we we live in a country where more than 90% of the people are employed and businesses are doing pretty well right now. But yet we have first-time marriages, 50% of them end in divorce. All the way up to third time a person gets married, 75% of them get divorced. And the number one reason for the divorce is communication or lack thereof. So, mm-hmm. But obviously we're successful in business. We maintain customers. We treat customers with dignity and respect because our business's life depends on that interaction and that communication. So what would happen if we took everything we know about treating customers with dignity and respect so that they will continue to come back and want to do business with us? How do we reframe that so that we take those same philosophies and apply them to our relationships? Because after all, our relationships should be an important life issue for us. We should want to invest in in building those so that the people in our lives want to come back and do, quote, repeat business with us. And Mm. part of that philosophy is looking at the cost-benefit analysis. So it's a business term that I apply to personal relationships. So in business, for example, you're a small business, and let's say you need a piece of equipment, but this piece of equipment costs us $10,000. So now you have to look, now you know the cost of that equipment, What is the benefit to buying that equipment? So if you're sending that work out now and you're spending X number of dollars and you can now keep that work in, how much, how long is it going to be before that piece of equipment pays for itself? And how much faster can you turn around that work so that your customers are even more happy with the kind of work you do? So that's, that's basically what a cost-benefit analysis is for a business. So how do you apply that same concept to a personal relationship? If you're going to spend money or whether you're going to make a decision about something you say or something you do, um, you know, there are things that I can tell you as your friend that if, if my spouse, or you can tell me as my friend, but if my spouse said the same, probably wouldn't be received very well because there's all that emotional baggage that comes with it. And also it depends on the tone of voice that's being used and the environment. All of those things come together. So let's Mm -hmm. say my spouse has something difficult he wants to say to me. 
So it's about the cost-benefit analysis is, is this really something you want to say? Is it, a, is it a, an issue that needs to be discussed? Because if the behavior doesn't change, it's going to have a huge cost, negative cost on the relationship. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's the part of the cost-benefit analysis. The other part of that is, how can you say this thing that's not very pretty but needs to be discussed because you've already decided that? How do you set up an environment and how do you set up the message so it's received as being helpful and not hurtful? So how do you elevate the relationship to a high enough level that whatever you're going to say is said um, in a safe way, in a safe place, in a safe manner? So that's kind of, that's kind of a, a nutshell of the cost-benefit analysis and how I like to help people rethink what we already know. Because it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. So how do uh-huh. we take the things we already know and reapply them in a different way, just with a slight twist or reframing? I want to be sure to fit in one other question. How is your life different okay. today? Right? How's your life different today? Can you make a, give us a really short statement of what's different now that you've utilized your forward uh, approach oh well that to me that's easy because I never really felt like I was blessed or that I was I had anything good going for me and now a moment doesn't go by where I don't count my blessings and when I can count my blessings and look at the the wonderful people that had been brought into my life I mean you and I had a chance meeting you know things had to come together in such a way and I consider that a blessing and so even, even when things don't go well, I always stop and think about what can I learn from this instead of blaming myself for having done something wrong. How can we turn this into something right? So it's just having that, what you hear a lot of, that, that attitude of gratitude because I am tremendously blessed. And it doesn't do any good to be blessed if you don't stop and just really relish in those blessings. Absolutely. That's so lovely. Arlene, it's been, uh, you know, your personal story is really difficult to hear about uh, for a lot of people, as you've talked about. Uh, But the way you presented it and the way you've written about it is brilliant. And I uh, mentioned to you right before we started the show that it was difficult for me to put your book, Face Forward, Move Forward, down until I finished it. So... As a, as a fellow human being, I want to thank you for the work you've done with yourself because you've made our world a better place through that. And thank you for writing it down along with your discoveries and your successes and your challenges so that other people can find a way to leave their difficult, painful past behind and live the life they really want to live. So I, I really thank you for that. Thank you for being a full power living today. Well, thank you for the kind words, and thank you for this opportunity to get this message that your past does not have to define your future and that you were created for greatness and for peace and possibilities. I I appreciate the opportunity so much. Yeah. Remember, Arlene's book is Face Forward, Move Forward. Her website is ArleneGale.com. So listen to Full Power again on Thursday, January 5th, when I talk with Joyce Stewart about moving from fear to love, which is a great topic for the new year. We'll be on at 9 a.m. Pacific time. That's noon Eastern time. And if you can't be with us in person, listen to our archives or subscribe to Full Power Living on iTunes. In the meantime, have a wonderful holiday season and enjoy and be grateful for every opportunity including the challenging ones you have during the season. We'll see you back here on January 5th.
Bull Power Living's producer is Paul Johnston of Fresh Talk Media. And for now, pay attention not to what you want to overcome, but to what you want to become. Living with Eileen Dillon.